0: Thank you. Let me tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. one 914 9149 As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's one 914 9149 This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, here we are. I'm going to try not to giggle through the... I don't know if it's going to work. That was yesterday. You'll forgive me because, well, I... I'll place I, a bet. I, I, I got oh, a... <laughs> the voice might just say, I'll place a bet. But yeah, I got letters from the old country and, well, they were fun. <laughs> so I'm already giggling and we haven't even started. Let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, enkindle them the fire of your love, send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, o Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well let us go to the big book in the coffee table. In the coffee table. <sighs> on the coffee table. Well, you know it's under we put it under the the glass thing so it doesn't get dirty. I'm oh kidding. yes, with all kidding. old yes. old editions of National Geographic. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Was that live to your voice in my head? Yes, that was live. Good. Good that was live. All right. I never know. I I find it reassuring when when the voice in my head all the way from Lincolnshire says, you're live. <laughs> so far, I am. All right, let's go to the reading. Genesis 1119. I do not know, again, if this is parable, poetry, literal history. I That's not the point of it. The, the Again, the scriptures were written about events that were commonly known and commonly believed to have happened in the first chapters of things like the fall and the flood and now the Tower of Babel. Uh, the, these events were known to the people who would have heard these stories. And these probably started off as oral traditions, as most uh, epic literature does. And if the Bible isn't epic, then nothing is. So it isn't just literature. Of course, it is, it is the, the, the speaking of the Holy Spirit. But these events were known and what the scriptures do is explain them and, and, and give them meaning. This is what this event me meant. This is what human weakness means. This is what sin means. This is what mortality means. This is what that flood you heard about from your great-grandfather meant. This is what that tower you heard about from your great-great-grandfather meant. So, the whole world spoke the same language. Now... I am a bit of what they call a language nerd. I love linguistics, and I taught, as you know, dead languages to comatose seminarians for, well, almost 25 years. And languages are fascinating. I have a good friend who married a a, a Greek girl, a wonderful, wonderful friend of mine. He was uh, Mexican, and she, of course, was Greek. And her father as most Greeks, was very proud of his Hellenic uh, heritage. Give me and a he word, said, any word, ex- and that, I show th- you that, <laughs> how the root of that word is Greek. That is exactly what this fellow really believed. He he said to my, my friend, whose name I won't mention, <laughs> that every language, that Greek is the oldest language in the world, and every other language is descended from Greek and I said well let's call him Fred I don't want to I don't want to reveal the poor guy's identity but uh, unless you get in trouble well Fred um, the first thing yes you can say yes to that every language is ultimately the oldest language in the world because languages evolve from one another at fairly consistent rates uh, that languages don't just sort of happen, they evolve. Um, uh, German, for instance, and English evolved from the west <coughs> branch of the Germanic languages, which in turn come from something called uh, Proto-Indo-European, which Lord knows where that comes from. <coughs> when human beings were a very small group of people, they spoke the same language. Uh, and as they got distant from one another, languages changed. Languages evolve one from another. Uh, I used to talk, tell my students, talk to my students about the time and alcohol principle of language development. Time does for language over the long run what alcohol does over the short run. It slurs it. Latin became Spanish, and Latin became Italian, and Latin became Romanian. And Latin became French, and that just took a lot of good wine. So this is how languages happen. And we can watch languages evolving. Um, that uh, uh, Listen to someone who is English, speak the English language, and the sounds are different. A lot of the vocabulary is different, but principally the sounds become different. And when languages run up against each other, their grammar changes. So I I know this is a little, well, this is just for the language geeks among you, but the world did at one point speak the same language. The story, however, is about their arrogance. They said, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. And so make a name for ourselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves. What's in a name? I think I've shared this with you. uh, The name really is another word for authority or prestige. If I say to you, I am here in the name of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, you promptly open the door for me and uh, say, yes, officer. Uh, If I am pretending that and don't have the warrant and don't have the badge and all that sort of thing, I'm going to get in pretty serious trouble pretty soon. So that's what a name is. It has to do with authority. And this story has a universal and a timeless application. When we try to make ourselves an authority, when we try to make ourselves a name, we are in trouble. Because God is the only real name. Only at the name of Jesus must every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, or or if Jews, for instance, when they are talking about God, they will not, certainly not, use the word YHWH. They don't even use that when they're praying. They won't use the word Adonai, which means Lord, which they only use when they're praying. They will say Hashem, the name. I'm talking about, you know, Hashem really made all things out of nothing that Hashem, that's what they say. It means the name. So they wanted to divorce themselves from the name by making their own name. And that was their arrogance. That was their sin. And we do that constantly. We're going to make our own way in the world. And when we get in trouble, we we ask God to fish us out of the mess we're in. So the Lord God confused their speech. And this this is a story that, that uh, i think telescope's history that we do how to say this i don't believe in race at all i don't think race is a reality genetically we are 99 i think it's 99.99 plus the same genetic material our skin colors our our the shapes of our faces and our our height our our girth these are all conditioned by the the climates and the environments in which we live but essentially we are the same the same bunch i think everyone on earth i heard somewhere is a 30th cousin you know we're 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 descended and i think we as christians can be very proud of this because the bible teaches it and we believe it that we are descended from the same man and woman and genetics have confirmed that all people at least It seems to confirm with them when all people are descended from the same woman, all people are descended from the same man. Now science does not claim that they were living at the same time, but well, scripture does. So I'm I'm not going there, but we are closely related to one another, and at one point in history there were not very many of us, Uh, just a few, just a band of, you know, uh, probably it was in the hundreds, if not under a hundred. Some some theorists think. And for a long time, we just lived on the eastern edge of Africa. So, of course, that's what geneticists claim. Well, lo and behold, when we separated from each other, when we began to go out from that original place whence we all come, our languages began to change. And this was the invention of what we call race. You know, I can't talk to you. Well, first of all, I—I I don't know. This is Father Simon's theory of everything genetic, and I should hurry because there's a lot more to talk about. The—the um, the, uh, you tend to marry people with whom you can talk. <laughs> That's how it works, and so pretty soon, a group of people who share a common language kind of start looking like each other, and they kind of develop their own culture, their own way of doing things, and then they run into someone whom they were related a few centuries ago who have a different look and a different culture. and Well, ours is clearly better than yours. No, it's just different. When you meet someone who looks different from you and has different... uh, A good example, I will never forget being in the Dominics, a store in uh, uptown Chicago, and there was an African woman, a large, statuesque African woman, dressed in the traditional Nigerian costume. Beautiful, just beautiful outfit. And she was shucking corn in the uh, in the produce department. And there was a little fellow who's yelling at her, saying, we don't do that here. Well, where she did it, that was normal. Where he did it, it wasn't. And he followed around the store yelling at her. And I kept wanting to go up to the fellow and say, sir, she could squash you like a bug. Don't worry about it. You know, the, the people have different ways of doing things. And... Uh, this is a good example. I remember a, a Puerto Rican friend of mine when I was in college. Um, he would go home and, well, he would, you know, Puerto Ricans feel it's very respectful. And I think a lot of cultures do this. When you're being uh, yelled at by a superior, you look down. We Americans, we look you in the face, look at me when I'm talking to you, because we believe we can see truth in the eyes. Well, he would go to college, and when he was being reprimanded by a dean or a house a house dean or something, look at me when I'm talking to you. Well, he would get used to it. Then he'd go home, and his father would be upset with him about something. He'd say, why are you staring at me when I'm talking to you? Is one better than the other? No, it's just a culture. And language and culture are very closely related. And this story describes... Uh, the mistake that we make, that we, we wanted to be, in a sense, independent of God, and we ended up just thinking we we're better than one another. This story is the source of war. It is the source of racism. It's the source of all those things. So don't say, oh, it's just a fable. Oh, no, it gives meaning to the reality of our life in the world. Okay, let me move on to Mark. Um, this is This is significant. Mark 8.34, Jesus summoned the crowd. Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself take up his cross and follow me for whoever wishes to save his life and this word in greek is psyche it is also translated soul whoever wishes to save his soul will lose it but whoever loses his soul for my sake and that of the gospel will save it what does it mean let's use the translation soul the word is psyche from which we get psychology psyche all those sorts of words and i have come to believe you know pondering this for many years that we are incarnate spirits. We are spirits. We are living breaths who manifest ourselves by the grace of God in a mortal body and in an immortal psyche, an immortal soul. I am a a living being who has both a body and a soul, one being mortal, the other immortal. All right, that said, why is the psyche so important? Because it's immortal, it lives. It's a. It's a part. The part of me, the manifestation of me, that lives forever, and to lose it, is is to lose who you are. Well, Jesus says, yeah, you do. You give yourself away, and God gives you back to yourself, new and improved. Now, again, the the cross. What is the cross? I've shared this with you before, and I'll try to share it briefly. That I was saying mass one day, and privately, and the fruit flies in this hot summer day were dye bombing the chalice and in my heart i said lord i believe this is your flesh and blood couldn't you convince the fruit flies of this great miracle for just a moment and that little voice inside that sometimes is the holy spirit speaking for the lord said with my hands nailed to the wood of the cross i was a feast for the flies I could almost not go on with the Mass. I understood the cross in a totally new way. The cross is about powerlessness. Jesus lost his soul for love of us and gained it in the resurrection to eternal life, to to the lordship that was due him. I, I think it's not too much to say that. He gave away his very psyche, his very psyche, on the cross the all-powerful god the hand that set the stars to spinning could not lift itself to swipe away the flies from his face that was the extremity of his love and when i say when someone says to me carry your cross they usually talk about suffering and it usually involves suffering i'll admit but it's about powerlessness when i can do nothing when i sit by the bedside of someone i love and i can do nothing when i have a sick child or a sick spouse or a sick friend and i can do nothing or a sick me and i can do nothing i'm powerless that's the cross and and you 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 lose your your, your psyche you lose your life to the lord and he gives it back new and improved so what could one give in exchange for his soul? Uh, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory. And then Jesus goes on, and this is the cruncher. He said to them, I say to you, are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come in power. Well, that clearly is wrong. The kingdom of God hasn't come. And they're all dead. No, you don't understand. I tell you this constantly, the word basilea kingdom does not mean a geographical territory or a political system. In Greek, it can mean those things, but those are way down the line. The primary meaning is of the word basilea, which is translated kingdom is royal nature until they see the royal nature of God is come in power. Where was, I again, forgive me, I say this all the time, where was the kingdom of God, God's royal nature manifested? On the cross. The cross is the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. When did he next drink the fruit of the vine? On the cross when he drank the, the cheap wine, the pusca held up by the Roman soldier, uh, the sponge and a branch of hyssop. You see, the cross is the kingdom of God. When you put your soul completely and unreservedly in the care and the keeping of God, then you're picking up the cross. You're picking up that powerlessness. And, you know, to me, this idea that the cross is the kingdom of God, that the powerless God, God who gave his power away for love of us, the powerless God does not force us to love him, he is it in the words of c.s lewis in the Screwtape letters he does not seduce us he can only woo us he doesn't overpower us he invites us you see the powerless christ on the cross does not force us to love him or to obey him he invites us by saying look at what i've done for you what wondrous love is this oh my soul you see The cross is the kingdom of God. And Jesus says at the beginning, whoever wishes to come after me must take up his cross. He talks about the cross. And then he talks about the kingdom of God because the cross is the kingdom of God. That said, let's go to a break and we'll come back with letters. Boy, have I got a lot of letters. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about the Catholic University for independent thinkers at RelevantRadio.com forward slash UDallas. Father Simon Says. Anything further, Father? Anything further, Father? That can't be right. Isn't it anything further, further? On Relevant Radio. I don't know what they have to say. It makes no difference anyway. Whatever it is, I'm against it. No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. Your well, may be good, but let's have one. This is on absolutely it is. I am it. absolutely I appropriate it for my I'm next segment. It. Let's go to letters. I got a nice letter from, I think it's Cami in Minneapolis. She moved, she and her family moved in a new home a month ago, and I'd like to have it blessed, but can I do this myself? I have a small bottle of holy water. Yes, you can do this. And I'm very, t- well, me, how would you do it? You just sprinkle each room and say, uh, Lord, please bless this this home. That's, that's, you know, I mean, you don't have to use any thous or therefores or, or King James English. Just spritz it with the holy water and say, please, Lord, bless this room in this house. Piece of cake. You can do this now. It's not the priestly blessing, but I was very touched by why you said you didn't. You want to do it yourself. The reason I'm asking is because I know priests are so busy and pulled in so many directions. And this is something I can. If this is something I do myself, then I will choose to do that. What I would do is bless it yourself, and then if you get to know Father better and he seems to 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 have the time, then you could ask him to come. But of course, you can bless your own home. Now, this, this whole thing about, about priests and, and, and the commitments, you know, I call this vestibulating. When you come up to the priest in the vestibule and say, Father, can you come to my house Tuesday and bless the, you know, the eight people around him wanting something? And, and you, he says, Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, call me. To, uh, uh, oh, by the way, you know, I used to tell my parishioners, if I say something to you in the vestibule, I'm lying. Oh, and they would become very upset by that. I've made a huge mistake. You... Yes, exactly. You, you want to you help people, and you're, you're, you're prone to saying yes when you really should say no. Um, I can't. I have to look at my calendar. And, you know, it's, it's um, you know, I think that if, were I king of the forest, I would certainly uh, encourage uh, the diaconate. I think, I think there's so many things that people expect of priests, that that um, are just unreasonable. Uh, oh, can can you do this? Can you do that? Mm, you know, I want. I, I have a new. I put in new sod, Father. Can you come over and bless it? Oh, uh, sure. I'll, oh, but, uh And then he's off, <sighs> vestibulating. You heard the word here first. Don't vestibulate a priest. All right, moving along. <laughs> I mean, really. Oh dear. I complain a lot, but actually. <laughs> All right, well, I want to go to Anna. This is from Anna, and it's a question regarding last Sunday's gospel. It seems that Jesus is saying we should not take an oath. What about an oath of office or an oath to tell the truth? Jesus, I think, is referring to a particular kind of oath-taking that the scribes and Pharisees were talking about. For instance, when he says, you can, um, uh, if you swear by the temple, it's not binding. If you swear by the gold of the temple, it's binding. The temple was not built because of an, an oath. Uh, you see, if I told you I swear I'm telling the truth, and I was lying, well, so I was lying. If I say I swear by God I was telling the truth, well, you've in got, involved God in your oath, and it's binding. So if you say, I swear by the temple, well, God didn't build the temple, Herod did. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, well, somebody offered that gold and a covenant and, and, and made a, a vow to the Lord. So that involves God, and this was this very complicated system of what oaths were binding and what oaths weren't and that's why jesus said don't do that tell the truth and when we demand an oath of office or an oath as a witness that's not this system of sophisticated, keeping your fingers crossed oath. Uh, Romans had a thing that that if they had a stone in their hand and they swore an oath, it wasn't binding because stones were the bones of Mother Earth and they were clinging to the bones of Mother Earth and that protected them. I mean, this is nuts. Jesus is saying this kind of sophisticated uh, process of swearing an oath uh, without endangering your soul, don't do that. So I, I hope that explains it. A simple oath uh that that you are tell that you are telling the truth. I don't think that's forbidden by the gospel. There are certain religious groups that do believe it was. All right. Let's see here. This I've got so many fun ones here. Um this is a great fun one. The horns on Moses. Uh, just a hair brain theory I'd like to ask you about. There's some confusion in the Hebrew about whether Moses' face only glowed or if he had horns when he returned with the Ten Commandments. Um in the in the Vulgate St. Jerome uses horns to say Moses came down the mountain with horns. And the word is cornuata from the Hebrew word keren. You keren, remember, Hebrew is a very vocabulary poor language. Keren can mean uh, uh, Q E R E N, keren. It can mean uh, uh, rays or horns. Just as uh, a week or two ago we were talking about the wings uh, of the Messiah, that there would be healing in his wings. Well, the word wing can mean the hem of a garment or the thing on the back of a bird. So he was a vocabulary poor language. And St. Jerome may have translated it that way, but it came as time went on. It came exclusively to mean horns. That's why you see Moses' famous picture of a uh, famous statue of Moses, which is in the church of St. Peter in chains, uh, San Pietro in vincolo in Rome. Uh, you'll see the statue of Moses with horns. And you'll see that in medieval art, that by about the 1200s, the word in St. John's Vulgate had come to mean exclusively with horns. Well, let me go on. Uh, but, but Wade, who's writing this letter, said, maybe it was horns because horns, the horn motif continues the golden cap, which Aaron made. Horns are a symbol of power. Moses seemingly worked a miracle unsanctioned by the Lord later on. Uh, do you think it's possible that God gave him a unique status, almost like a demigod? No, I don't. However, the body of Moses was hidden, lest the Hebrews have that impression and began to worship Moses. So Moses had a power that people might confuse with the power of God. And well, maybe the horns were symbolic of that. But um, the, the preferred translation now is rays coming from uh, Moses' face. But the word for rays and horns is easily confused in Hebrew. Karen, uh, not the not the not the lady's name. All right, that's fascinating thing, word. I, I enjoyed having to research that. Um, here's one that was a little a little well a lot difficult. Oh, as a child. You know, the question is, what is the best way not to feel hurt when families say unkind things? As a child, parents only said, what is wrong with you? No put downs. I know they love me. It's hard to shake the hurtful words. How do I undo or stop the pain? You confess it honestly to the Lord. You say, Lord, I was really hurt by this. And I give you, I think this is a, when you can't forgive, When when there's persistent bitterness in your heart. I think it's okay just to say, Lord, I'm I can't forgive them. I'm I've been unable to do it. I ask you to forgive them for me. I give you permission to forgive them for me. That's what I do when I when I there's a bitterness in my heart or something I just can't quite get over. Lord, I give you permission to forgive them for me. Please forgive them for me. It works. Give it a shot. Let's see here. Okay. Now this is um Uh, From Joan. (laughs) Oh, dear. Uh, The book of Genesis, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Since you now have banished me from the soil, I must avoid your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Anyone might kill me at sight. Who were the people who Cain thought might kill him? Well, this is one theory that the point of the family of Adam and Eve is that they were the first human beings with immortal souls, not the first hominids. That's one interpretation that I find kind of interesting. What do you mean, not the first hominids? Well, there seem to have been other other human-like creatures. But the immortal soul, perhaps, was passed on through the descendants of Adam and Eve. And so there would be other people, but not people who were fully human with immortal souls. That's one thought. I don't know. I wasn't there. But um, we, we envision, you know, we all learn about Adam and Eve and much of our theology and much of our, our, our belief from picture books that we read when we were seven. I think it shocked people a few a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about the Garden of Eden not being perfect. The creation is not perfect. Only heaven will be perfect. Paradise will be perfect. But the Garden of Eden was not what but but in the book i saw it was perfect and the yeah you read it when you were seven have you learned anything since you were seven who knows who these people were they might they were not descendants of adam and eve and thus were not uh, i believe um uh, people in our sense with immortal souls um there you go uh, that's one theory um and again, I'm, I'm not, strictly speaking, I'm not an evolutionist. I have no problem with natural selection. Bible says we were made from the clay of the earth. If God chose a process that involved natural selection to prepare a body for us, he breathed his own soul into us. He breathed his own breath into us. Uh, making us in the image and likeness of God. Other similar primates to us are not made in the image and likeness of God, and we believe do not have immortal souls. They may be very intelligent and can say lots of words by signing and uh, be very nice. And our dogs, God bless our dogs, they don't have immortal souls. I do believe, however, that nothing is lost to God, so (laughs) Fido is not forgotten by God. Uh, It isn't the same thing as having an immortal soul, but to God, all are alive, so don't worry about your dog. Okay, I better move on before I get in trouble with someone. Moving along here, let me look at the time. You know, I think we will go to, uh, oh, by the way, I don't know that I mentioned it. The phones are open, 888-914-914, 888-914-9149. There's lots of lines open, so do call in, and we will go to a break. Coming back with a word of the day. hi this is father rich simon have you ever dreamt of seeing the sights in italy saint peter's basilica the sistine chapel drew mariani in the coliseum fighting to the death more info on our september eucharistic revival pilgrimage at relevantradiocom italy seats are limited not in the coliseum necessarily but on on the pilgrimage Always don't love god if you don't love your neighbor if gossip about him if you never have mercy if he gets into trouble and you don't try to help him then you don't love your neighbor and you, you don't love god truer words never sung truer words never sung before we go to the word of the day i want to talk about the, the templars i got a letter from from someone called k My elderly father believes any old thing Hollywood puts out. I'm always telling you, don't get your history from TV or your religion. Can you give me the skinny on the Templar Knights? I was told they denounced Christ. Can you tell us what happened? Um, Let's see here. Um, Shortly before my ex-husband abandoned me, he was obsessed with the Templar Knights and may have joined the Freemasons. The The Knights Templar were established about 20 years after the First Crusade. Briefly, the Crusades were a, uh, a defensive war that, that uh, another group of, of monotheists who do not like Christians particularly took over the Holy Land, which had been a Christian uh, country for, well, 400 years. That's almost twice as long as the United States has been around. It was Christian. It was Greek. And, well, they, they took it, and they were threatening to take the rest of the, the Christian territories in the area. And the emperor of Constantinople petitioned uh, his fellow Christians in Europe to come and help him. Well, they were a little less civilized than he hoped, but um, they succeeded in their first crusade. And the point was so that they could make pilgrimage to the holy shrines. Uh, um, the first crusade was really occasioned by the fact that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre had been torn down, uh, and they tried to hack away the tomb of Christ, but the roof falling in protected the tomb of Christ, and it's still there. But that was the Fatimid Caliph of Egypt in, I think he did it, oh gosh, was in the 10 hundreds, and the First Crusade was a response to things like that, to protect Christians on pilgrimage. and. Twenty years after this successful first crusade, uh, uh, there was a group of people who got together who were armed monks. That doesn't occur to us. And their job was to protect pilgrims all the way from Europe to the Holy Land. They were called the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon. They were housed in uh, the area of, of what is today known as the Dome of the Rock, which had been the temple. And they they continued for two centuries, and they were so trustworthy that people would, would, when they went on crusade or when they went on pilgrimage, they would give their money and their valuables to be held until they got back uh, um, by the Knights Templar. And the Knights Templar, though rather poor themselves, became a, not only a great military order protecting pilgrims, but they became a trustworthy banking house. And 200 years after the, the Templars were established, uh, King Philip, uh, the Fair of France, uh, decided he wanted what they had. And so that was 1305, and the French had come to completely dominate the papacy. The Pope was living in Avignon, was a Frenchman, and the King of France considered himself their superior. And he demanded that they denounce the Templars. There were all sorts of forced charges, and they were persecuted, many of them killed, and those who lived were forced to join other religious orders. So that's the history, in very brief, of the Knights Templar. Uh, uh, so that's that's that. No, Now let's go to the word of the day. I want to talk about the word of the day. Word of the day is 12 again. I got a question yesterday. uh, Is there a deeper meaning to 12? And 12, when you see it in the Bible, has to do with authority. And the reason I'm sharing this again today was I was utterly intrigued because if you read the story of the healing of the raising of the daughter of Jairus and, and the healing of a woman with a hemorrhage, they're squeezed together. Why are they squeezed together? And they're squeezed together because of the number 12. Twelve talks about authority. The girl was twelve years old. The woman had been uh, had a hemorrhage for twelve years. Jesus had been excommunicated from the synagogue, and anyone who associated with him was excommunicated from the synagogue. We read that in the Gospel of John. Jairus was the synagogue president, the archisynagogos, or is it archisynagogon? But he was he was a man of real authority and he was prominent. He was the president of the synagogue and he said, my daughter's dying. I don't care that I'm going to be excommunicated. I'm going to find this rabbi and heal my daughter. He found an authority superior to the authority of uh, the synagogue associations. The woman with the hemorrhage was unclean. According to the law, you couldn't even touch her. And Jesus reached out to her. She had been, hemorrhaging for 12 years so i've always wondered why did they squeeze the story about the woman with the hemorrhage in the story of the raising of jairus well they happened at the same time it seems but the number 12 ties them together that jesus has an authority superior to torah and to synagogue that's rather bold to say that but it still is about authority. I thought that was fascinating. All right. Moving along, let's go to phone calls. There is something that matter with your phone. Mary, I'm sure your phone is fine. From Sarasota, Florida, what can I do for you? Hi, Father. I have a question about John the Baptist. Yes. Yes. If He, he was Jesus' cousin, and mm-hmm. they were probably raised together, right? And, no. Wouldn't you think? No, no, no. John the Baptist, okay. as a little boy, was given, uh, was was consecrated, and he would have lived with a religious order in the desert. Well, then that makes they sense, probably I couldn't yeah. figure out that makes. Oh well, yeah. Okay. I have a th- I have my own theory, which I think is wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. that that uh, John was, uh, you know, he he had, he had recognized Jesus in in the baptism in the Jordan. And he would have known he was a relative, but hadn't seen him since they were little. But, you know, when you're about to die for something, you want to make sure that you're not wasting your life and that, you know, you have put your eggs in the right basket. That was my theory. But then I heard a much better theory. And this is, I think, from the fathers of the church, that John sent his disciples to ask, are you the one? Not in order to reassure himself, but to reassure them that Jesus was the Messiah and John the Baptist wasn't. People thought John was the Messiah. And there's still about 60,000 yeah. people today who, who they're called the Mandeans, who live in the Middle East uh, and have suffered greatly in the recent unpleasantness. They still think of John as the Messiah. And I was corrected by someone and they were correct that he's the great prophet, but a great prophet, Messiah, meh. you know, but but they still reverence John the Baptist, not Jesus. So John the Baptist had followers and he wanted to convince his followers that Jesus was the Messiah and he wasn't. So that's those. Those are a number of possibilities. So there you go. Does that help? Yes. I. I just. I kept thinking. Well, if why didn't sure. he know them? They're cousins. They. they well, you know, I'm the sure cousin thing wouldn't them. wouldn't have been important. The baptism in the Jordan. Well, that would have been different. But I think that the the patristic answer is the right one. That that he, John the Baptist did it to reassure his followers that that jesus was the messiah so thank you for calling in and i hope that answers your question all right thank let's you, go father. to you're welcome let's go to dan from providence rhode island what can i How do you for both? you dan yeah first of all go father ahead. thank you for sharing about that story with uh, jesus healing Jairus's daughter I, that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie jesus of nazareth and, oh, it's beautiful. 12, yes. and I, that, I didn't even make that connection thank you for sharing that nicely done well you're welcome Yeah, I I have a question for you now. Uh, After Mass yesterday, we had a discussion group, and um, the person brought up the idea when Jesus was on the cross and he said to St. Dismas, the good thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, we always Mm -hmm. assumed when Jesus said paradise that he meant heaven, but yet somebody in the group said, no, paradise and heaven are two different things. And then we kind of questioned that until we, well, we Googled it. I don't know how accurate that is, but then... It did make a distinction. I thought maybe you could clarify that. Well, my distinction will be different, I bet, than the Google distinction, because heaven (laughs) is a euphemism for God. Heaven and God are, and you see in Luke, kingdom of God, what you see in Matthew, kingdom of heaven, because Jews avoided even the use of the word God. They would say heaven willing instead of God willing. Luke was a Greek. He wasn't Jewish. So he had no problem saying kingdom of God. And kingdom I'm like this is the X. I, I ground it in the teaching today. Basilea means royal nature. So when you see kingdom of heaven it really means I think God's royal nature. This is what real royalty is. Dies on a cross, it's born in a barn. Paradise is the walled garden. It's a it's a Persian word. It's the walled garden where uh, you walk in fellowship and friendship and intimacy with the king. And so we we don't go to heaven we, we go home, we get adopted by God into God's royal nature. And the, the, the state in which we will live is this walled garden where we are in perfect fellowship with, with the king, with Christ. So that's what a paradise is. It's a walled garden where you walk with the king. Heaven is a euphemism for God. So we will go. You know the beautiful song that is often sung in Latin at the at the end of funerals. May the angels lead you into paradise, may the martyrs come to welcome you on your way, uh, and, and lead you into the New Jerusalem, the Holy City. It's it's a, such a beautiful song, and that's the idea. May the angels lead you into paradise. Does that help a little? So paradise and heaven they're combined then. One's no, the, what we what we it, think or, of. No, what we think of heaven is paradise. Heaven means okay. God. You know, the kingdom right. of heaven okay. is the same as okay. the kingdom right. of God. You know that that yep. you know one can be too strict about this, and you know people talk about heaven; they mean paradise. Paradise, they mean heaven, but that's what we mean by them. The words are distinct uh, in their meaning in the scriptures uh however there isn't heaven and then a step below it paradise i don't believe that you know which is i'm sure okay, what, what, what that's saying so paradise is what we mean way. by heaven yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. paradise so is what we mean by heaven okay yeah okay. exactly so that's just that's, to make sure. that's what i think yeah yeah people want to make all these distinctions about someplace they've never been and hopefully they will be going all right hope that helps a little god bless dan and i'm honored that you listen and that's what you get when you when you press one of my buttons about the kingdom of heaven i i'm I, maybe i should let it go all right no Joyce. what can i do for you well hello thanks for taking my call the glory well i'm honored Father. yes and the um sign of the cross seemed to me very similar they sound yes. almost the same when you get started yes. and i'm wondering if they come from the same source. And is each one of those an actual prayer? Of, well, of course it is. Um, they're both prayers. I As for coming from the same source, they would come from our belief in the Trinity. Um, the, the glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit is called the doxology, which means the word of praise. So um, uh, the, that's what is a doxology. And uh, the 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 glory glory of the glory to the father um, uh, is a Latin prayer and and it also comes to us from Greek uh, and its its history is very very ancient uh, we share it with, with the Orthodox and and with other groups uh, Protestant Catholic so it, it's quite ancient um, however. Uh, th- this is this is called the doxology, the 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 sign of the cross that has a, a, a more obscure history really. Um, the sign of the cross was once made just on the forehead, uh, of of uh, you made it on your forehead, and then it kind of extended itself. Uh, its its origin um, we see around the year two hundred. Uh, um, Tertullian wrote that, that Christians wear out their foreheads with a sign of cross. You know, they're always crossing their foreheads. And it became, uh, you know, the bigger gesture, head, stomach, shoulders, uh, much later on, that, that, that motion. So uh, they really kind of come from, uh, they both are a confession of a belief in the Trinity, but they. I don't know that we can say that they had the same exact origin. Does that help at all? Yes, it does. Thank you for letting me pick your brain. Well, my, my, you know, don't pick too deeply. <laughs> There's not much of it there. All right, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. All right, All right. Where? what do we got now? Let me go back to, let's go to River from Brunswick, or was it Burnside? I can't, I've got to get glasses on for this. River, what can I do for you? Hi, Father. Um, I had a question um, about the chapter. I think it's chapter fourteen in um, Zechariah, where it talks about uh, the Lord reigning in Jerusalem and all the nations celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if you knew anything about that, or had, or knew of any like scholars that would be from like a Catholic perspective. Oh well, I I just. I don't know what any scholars would talk about it, but the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths is one of the favorite feasts. It's one of my favorite Jewish feasts because it involves usually involves brisket. It's a lovely thing, it's in autumn. But no seriously I've been to many, many celebrations of Sukkos, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was loved by the Jews because it was a kind of jamboree. They would all go camp out around the temple and in the environs of Jerusalem. And uh, uh it was extended for people who came in from distances, from seven days to eight days, because it was so good, as Peter said to Jesus, for people to be there. So that was um, uh, the the this loved feast. It was one of the the three pilgrimage feasts where you expected to go to Jerusalem. That was fulfilled. That that word of Zechariah. Was fulfilled symbolically in the Transfiguration on Mount Tabor, when Jesus appeared with Moses and Elijah, and Peter said, "It's good for us to be here. Let us build three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah." That was uh, that was a symbolic fulfillment, and the 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 fee, idea of Feast of Tabernacles is it's so good for us to be here, and in a sense, every church where the Blessed Sacrament is kept throughout all the world is the fulfillment of that because Christ is present in those places and that's the new Jerusalem and where Christ is. And it's so good for us to be there. A beautiful church fulfills that chapter of Zechariah. Does that help a little bit? Uh, Yes, father. I just kind of, it's funny to me that kind of all of the Hebrew like feasts um, kind of made it into the new, like into the Catholic tradition except the feast of tabernacles there's like nothing in october well not not in october but in a way it made it into catholicism in every every church that's built that that it's good for us to be here we come to the temple you know the the feast of tabernacles was a time when you came to the temple and you camped out with friends and relatives and people you hadn't seen for ages and had wonderful meals. It sounds like a nice church supper after mass, you know, that, that, that it is fulfilled uh, in a sense in, in the Christian uh, dispensation in every church. So, so yeah, oh, that's it very is. Helpful, uh, Father, thank you. I, I hope, I hope so. And I, I the feast of Booths is a wonderful time. I, I, I used to celebrate it at Rabbi Levkovitz's synagogue, and that was some of my, my most, most enjoyable memories. And uh, uh, it's a wonderful feast. And it's a great question. God bless, and thanks for asking. Let's go quickly to Elias. You're welcome. Elias Elias from Lexington, Kentucky. Are you with us, Elias? We've only got a few seconds. Yes, what Father. can I do for you? Yes, Good. Father. In the Hebrew belief, if when the baby in the womb, the baby not being considered a human... When the baby is born, the baby still not being considered human till he passed the age of seven weeks. Is that true or false? I, you know, I would have to research it. It Depends which rabbi you talk to. And I hear music in my head, so I'll try and I'll try and answer that question Monday because Drew's coming up. It's a complex question. I think most most Jews would say that that child is human in the womb after forty days, but I'd have to research it. And speaking of research, don't go anywhere. Drew's here, and he knows what he's talking about.